Help defend the church by becoming a supporter of Family Life International. Your contributions enable us to continue our work to promote the faith, defend the family and promote the sanctity of life. Make a real difference today. Go to www.familyandlife.org.uk slash donate. FLI presents Father Linus Clovis speaking on Francis, a Pope for our time. I should like to begin by thanking Patricia McKeever and Catholic Truth Scotland for the invitation to speak at this conference. Although I had lived in London for the better part of 25 years, this is in fact my first visit to Scotland, but as a good friend of mine often says, nothing before its time. By God's grace, I am a Catholic. By his mercy, I shall die one. I know that whilst the first is a pure gift, the second depends on my free and willing cooperation with grace, on my keeping the faith, passing on what I myself have been given, fighting the good fight with a clear conscience, and persevering in the faith to the end. This, of course, applies to all of us. Last year I spoke at the Rome Life Forum on the Francis Effect. The talk, much to my surprise, somehow or other ended up on the internet, where the reactions generated were, for the most part, favourable. The source of a handful of disapproving comments I leave to your imagination. It was in the initial stage of euphoria that I first received and readily accepted the invitation to speak at this Catholic Truth Scotland conference. But as the time drew closer, I began having second thoughts, for no authentic Catholic takes pleasure in deprecating any papal document, let alone criticising a reigning sovereign pontiff. However, we now live in desperate times, times of mass confusion, where the banners of darkness are boldly unfurled. So, with second thoughts, let us speak openly and plainly in defence of our holy faith and for the glory of God and the salvation of souls. From ancient times, the Church has been known as the Bark of Peter. For this reason, she has often been depicted as a ship sailing on the seas of history. Sometimes, calm winds fill her sails and she skims over the waves with lofty and serene grace. At other times, however, the winds howl, the sea churns with trophy waves, lightning bolts crisscross the skies, thunder alarms the sailors, and the ship appears to be sinking. Since the Lord had to suffer many things before he entered into his glory, and St. Paul could declare that it is necessary for us to pass through many tribulations before we enter the kingdom of God, it should come as no surprise that the church, who is not greater than her master, is not exempted from sufferings, afflictions, and tribulations. The church throughout her 2,000-year history has experienced tribulations both external and internal. Not only has she been buffeted by outright state persecution, but she has also been lacerated by the great Christological heresies, wounded by the Protestant Revolution, and finally, in our own time, ravaged by modernism, the synthesis of all heresies. Modernism attempts to replace the absolute and unchanging truths, the statements that correspond more with the lived experience of individuals, especially the emotional and sentimental experiences. The Church is the mystical body of Christ. The Church has been defined 
as the mystical body of Christ, an image found in St. Paul's letters to the Romans, Corinthians, Ephesians, and Colossians. This image succinctly expresses the union and the relationship that exists between each member of the Church with Christ and with each other. The mystics and the Church herself have seen the parallel between Eve's formation from Adam's side whilst he was asleep and the Church being formed from the pierced side of Christ while he slept the sleep of death on the cross. Like a living physical body, the mystical body, in order to grow and develop, had to overcome diverse crises. The four greatest traumas experienced by the mystical body would be the 4th century Arian heresy, the 11th century investiture controversy, the 16th century Protestant revolution, and the current modernist infiltration, each of which attacks the very nature of the church. Christ called himself the vine and his member the branches with this imagery. He would be the skeleton of the mystical body, with his members being the various organs, as St. Paul asserts in the letter to the Corinthians. Scripturally, bones are symbolic of imperishability, since they remain even when, after death, the flesh has decayed. With this analogy, Arius's denial of Christ's divinity is equivalent to attack on the skeleton of the mystical body, which would at best be reduced to just another man-made religion. Although, conflict, although the conflict was long and bitter, and many bishops faltered by succumbing to Arianism, the truth of Christ's divinity and with it the indefectibility of the Church was established by St. Athanasius. The 11th century conflict between church and state, that is, between the popes and the princes, is known as the investiture controversy. Secular princes, and in particular the emperor, claim the right to choose men for the episcopate and even for the papal office. Using the analogy of the physical body, this can be described as an attack on the muscles of the church, since she would be reduced to nothing other than a puppet of the state. However, God, working through the Cluny reformers, in due course brought the great Hildebrand to the papal throne, where, as Gregory VII, he fought strenuously and suffered greatly to re-establish the Church's independence from the state. The 16th century Protestant Revolution, spearheaded by Martin Luther and John Calvin, sought not only to change the Church's teaching on grace and sacraments, but also to undermine a divinely constituted teaching authority. Their attack on the sacraments by which grace is conferred was the equivalent of removing the vital internal organs of the mystical body, which would have effectively reduced the church to one among many sects. In our own time, the church faces her greatest challenge in her confrontation with the Goliath of modernism. This, St. Pope Pius X, in his encyclical of 1907, called Pascendi, identified and condemned it as a heresy, embracing every heresy. The origins of modernism. Modernism is the offspring of, a cert of certain tendencies prevalent in the 19th century liberal Protestantism and secular philosophy. With centers in France, England, Italy, and Germany, the spirit of modernism was fed by the studies of Kant and Hegel, by liberal Protestant theologians and biblical critics such as von Hanak, 
by the evolutionary theories of Darwin and by certain liberal political movements in Europe. The two roots of modernism are Protestantism, or at least the Protestant Revolution, and the Enlightenment. The Protestant Revolution. At the heart of the Protestant Revolution is a rejection of the magisterium of the Church established by Christ in favor of each individual acting as the ultimate authority, thereby interpreting and defining all matters of faith and morals for himself. The Enlightenment. The Enlightenment rejected all divine revelation and exalted man's ability, using reason alone, to determine what is true in matters of faith and morals. This eventually led to the modernist view that truth should be determined by the individual rather than by God or by the Church's magisterium. Modernism's two luminaries in the Catholic Church were Father Alfred Loisy, a French theologian and scripture scholar, and Father George Tyrrell, an Irish-born Protestant who became a Catholic and a Jesuit, though he was dismissed from the Jesuits in 1906. Both these men were eventually excommunicated for their spousals of modernism. The Modernist Ideas Since it has no official creed, modernism is hard to define. However, there are some basic components by which it can be identified. Modernism holds some six main points. There are others, but the six main points are all religions are equal, religion is not about dogmas, but about sentimentality and feelings. Third, the historical Jesus is not necessarily the Jesus of the Gospels. They believe also in the evolution of doctrine. They are very fluid on their terminology and they espouse secular and other Enlightenment principles. So if we look at each of these six separately, we start with all religions are equal. Modernism is syncretistic, that is, for the modernists, it does not matter whether one is Catholic, Muslim, Hindu, Wiccan, or snake handler. All that matters is that one is religious in some way, since all religious paths, according to them, lead to God. For them, religion is not about dogma. For the modernists, religion is essentially about what makes you feel good, what makes you feel happy. If Christianity or any other religion makes you feel good and more in touch with the divine, then it's true for you. In other words, religion does not consist of creeds or objective truth, but rather of feelings. The historical Jesus is not, they claim, necessarily the Jesus of the Gospels. This means, according to the modernists, from a historical perspective, the scriptures are not necessarily reliable. For example, the modernists would say that Jesus may not have literally risen from the dead. According to this view, the resurrection mentioned in scripture is essentially the way that apostles chose to communicate the belief that Jesus continues to live in our hearts after his crucifixion. Evolution of Doctrine The modernists holds that in previous centuries, the dogmas of the faith, such as those of the Trinity, were, were true, but since dogma evolves, they may no longer be true today. For the modernists, dogma evolves into whatever accommodates the needs of the current culture. In regard to terminology, modernists retain the orthodox terminology, but change the meaning of the terms. Thus, words like God, resurrection, trinity, and salvation 
are all used by modernists. However, what the modernists means and understands by these terms is totally different from that which the church understands and is traditionally taught. For this reason, modernists may appear to be orthodox, but by carefully sifting through their meaning and the terminology they use, their true nature is soon discovered. And lastly, secularism. Secularism rests on the principle that, since the cause and focus of religion lies primarily in the feelings of believers, no scientific or reasonable assumption of its truth can be made. Thus, in any given state, all religions are true. And on principle, no one religion should be favoured over another. Therefore, the best course of action in politics and other civic fields is to follow whatever flows from a common understanding of the good by various groups and religions. By implication, church and state should be separated, and the laws of the latter, for example, the prohibition of murder, should cover only the common ground of thought systems held by the various religious groups. Modernism's ultimate position is that the content of church dogmas does not remain the same for all time, but rather, it evolves over time, changing not only its expression, but also its substance. This postulate is responsible for modernism's uniqueness in the history of church heresies. By definition, a heretic is someone who believes and teaches tenets at variance with what the church believes. This ordinarily would lead to excommunication from the church. Using the new idea that doctrines evolve is now possible for the modernist to accept both the traditional teachings of the church and his new seemingly contradictory teachings as being equally correct, each group having own its own time and place. This system allows for almost any type of new belief which the modernists in question might wish to introduce. And for this reason, modernism was labeled by Pope Pius X as the synthesis of all heresies. With this understanding, modernism is now easily recognized as a heresy that attacks the mind of the mystical body, so that the church leaders behave schizophrenically and the laity act as if suffering from some form of dementia. Further, not only do both groups forget who they are, but they are equally incapable of handing on the fullness of faith and the Catholic identity to succeeding generations. Peter and his successors. In Genesis, we read that the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to till it and to keep it. That is, God assigned Adam two tasks. First, he was to cultivate the garden, and secondly, he was to guard it. His failure in the second task gave the serpent his opportunity. Christ entrusted to Simon Peter the visible leadership of the church with the double task of feeding and tending the flock. That is, as a good shepherd, he was to guard, protect, and preach the faith to the flock and so keep them from error and deception. Our Lord at the Last Supper warned Peter that the serpent was already watching and merely waiting for an opportunity to attack. Specifically, with words expressing both what Satan, Satan de desired and what God permitted, Christ said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift to you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. 
and when you have turned again, strengthen your brethren. God permitted this trial for at least two reasons. First, that the apostles might understand how weak they were of themselves, and second, that after their fall they would rise again by his grace and will be cleansed and purified as sifted wheat. Peter's fall was followed by his sincere repentance, and so Christ not only granted mercy to him, but also confirmed Peter's headship over the other apostles and over the whole church. The slow development of modernism, whose main tactic is to use equivocation and confusion to spread lethal errors, was tracked by the popes of the 19th century. Thus, Pius VI lifts the mask of modernism in his Bull Actorum Fidei. I quote, In order not to shock the ears of Catholics, the innovators sought to hide the subtleties of their torturous manoeuvres by the use of seemingly innocuous words, such as would allow them to insinuate error into the souls of the most, in the most gentle manner. Once the truth had been compromised, they could, by means of slight changes or additions in phraseology, distort the confession of faith that is necessary for our salvation and lead the faithful by subtle errors to the eternal damnation. This matter of dissimulating and lying is vicious, regardless of the circumstances under which it is used. For very good reasons, it can never be tolerated in the synod of which the principal glory consists, above all, in teaching the truth with clarity and excluding all danger of error. Moreover, if all this is sinful, it cannot be excused in the way that one sees it being done, under the erroneous pretext that the seemingly shocking affirmations in one place are further developed along orthodox lines in other places, and even in yet other places corrected, as if allowing for the possibility of either affirming or denying the statement, or of leaving it up to the personal inclinations of the individual. Such has always been the fraudulent and daring method used by innovators to establish error. It allows for both the possibility of promoting error and of excusing it. It is a most reprehensible technique for the insinuation of doctrinal errors, and one condemned long ago by our predecessor Saint Celestine, who found it used in the writings of Nestorius, Bishop of Constantinople, who was exposed and confounded, for he expressed himself in a plethora of words, mixing true things with others that were obscure, mixing at times one with the other in such a way that he was also able to confess those things which were denied, while at the same time possessing a basis for denying those very sentences which he confessed. End of quote. Having clearly identified modernism as a movement, St. Pius X was deeply concerned by its ability to allow its adherents to believe themselves loyal Catholics, while their notion of evolution of dogma allowed them to hold markedly different understanding of the traditional faith. Therefore, he condemned both its aims and ideas in the document Lamentabili and in his cyclical Pascendi, where 65 propositions were identified as modernist heresies. Then, in 1910, he followed up with the introduction of anti-modernist oath, which was to be taken by all Catholic bishops, priests, and academic teachers of religion. Thus contained, modernism went underground until, like the genie in the bottle, it was freed in the wake of Vatican II. 
St. Pius X saw clearly that the enemies of the Church had not only increased, but had also penetrated her walls. He said, It must be confessed that the number of the enemies of the cross of Christ has in these last days increased exceedingly, who are striving by arts, entirely new and full of subtlety, to destroy the vital energy of the Church, and, if they can, to overthrow utterly Christ's kingdom itself. Hence the danger is present almost in the very veins and heart of the Church, whose injury is the more certain from the very fact that the knowledge of her is more intimate. Moreover, they lay the axe not to the branches and shoots, but to the very root, that is, to the faith and its deepest fibres. And once having struck at this root of immortality, they proceed to diffuse poison through the whole tree, so that there is no part of Catholic truth which they leave untouched, none that they do not strive to corrupt. Pope John Twenty-Third, however, saw things differently. And rejecting the admonitions of his predecessors about the dangers of modernity, declared in his opening address at the Second Vatican Council, and again I quote, In the daily exercise of our pastoral office, we sometimes have to listen, much to our regret, to voices of persons who, though burning with zeal, are not endowed with too much sense of discretion and measure. In these modern times, they can see nothing but prevarication and ruin. They say that our era in comparison with past eras, is getting worse, and they behave as though they had learned nothing from history, which is nonetheless the teacher of life. They behave as though at the time of former councils everything was full of triumph for the Christian idea and life and for proper religious liberty. We feel we must disagree with these prophets of gloom, who were always forecasting disaster, as though the end of the world were at hand. In the present order of things, divine providence is leading us to a new order of human relations which, by men's own efforts and even beyond their expectations, are directed toward the fulfillment of God's superior and inscrutable designs. And everything, even human differences, lead to the greater good of the Church. At the outset of the Second Vatican Council, it is evident, as always, that the truth of the Lord will remain forever. We see, in fact, as one age succeeds another, that the opinions of men follow one another and exclude each other, and often errors vanish as quickly as they rise like fog before the sun. The Church has always opposed these errors. Frequently she has condemned them with the greatest severity. Nowadays, however, the spouse of Christ prefers to make use of the medicine of mercy rather than that of severity. She considers that she meets the needs of the present day by demonstrating the validity of a teaching rather than by condemnations. End of quote. The last 50 years since the close of the Council has seen a sea change in the Catholic Church to the extent that today she cannot be easily recognized as the same institution of any previous century. So profoundly has the Council affected all aspects of Church life and practice. The checkered history of the papacy shows, in the words of St. Vincent Lorenz, that God gives some popes to the Church. God tolerates some popes in the Church, and God inflicts some popes on the Church. This certainly is a view to which Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI subscribes. 
It is perhaps sufficient to recall the famous interview he granted in 1997 to Professor August Everding. Professor Everding asked the then Cardinal Ratzinger if he truly believed that the Holy Spirit intervenes in the election of a Pope. Cardinal Ratzinger's answer was simple and clarifying as usual. He said, I would not say in the sense that the Holy Spirit chooses any particular Pope, because there is plenty of evidence to the contrary. There have been many whom the Holy Spirit quite obviously would not have chosen, but that he does not altogether relinquish control, but rather like a good educator keeps us on a very long cord, so to speak, allowing us a great deal of freedom, but never unfastening the cord. That's how I'll put it. It needs to be taken in a very broad sense, and not as if he says, you've got to pick this one. What he allows, however, is limited to the fact that everything cannot be completely ruined. There is no doubt that the Church is currently in a state of deep crisis, which has been brought to a head by the current pontiff. As David's accession to the throne was a blessing to the Israelites, and that of Saul or Rehoboam, Solomon's son, a punishment, so we can be certain God has given each of blessed Peter's successors to the church as the Pope best suited for the time. Francis is undoubtedly a Pope suited for our time, in that he has in three short years opened the eyes of many to the diseases plaguing the mystical body of Christ. Without doubt, he is advancing ideas that provoke such disturbances within the church that they would appear to be a very efficient way of separating sheep from goats. In stark contrast to the reception given to his predecessors, even his immediate predecessors, it is striking that the church's traditional enemies all applaud him, recognizing him as their own. His actions have the effect of revealing the extent of the rot of modernism within the power structures of the church. Perhaps the most notorious example of this is the confidence with which Cardinals Godfrey Daniels and Walter Casper could openly and publicly admit to being part of the Singalan Mafia Club. The Holy Father seems to be the very personification of the Second Vatican Council, with his multitudinous ambiguities in which a church's traditional understanding or practice is affirmed in one place, only in another place, to be immediately contradicted or neutralized by alternatives being permitted. Additionally, Vatican II has the distinction of being the only ecumenical council in church history to win the world's approval, and similarly, Francis has received praise as no other pope in history has ever been praised by the church's adversaries. In many ways, the current pontiff fits the caricature that non-Catholics have of the pope, an autocrat whose every word must be obeyed. Indeed, his demand for compliance with his directives rings hollow when one considers his own violation of the Church's liturgical laws as Bishop of Buenos Aires. For example, whilst he was Archbishop, he included women in the ceremony of washing of feet on Holy Thursday, in infringement of clear liturgical laws. He also admitted to the sacraments remarried divorcees, in outright violation of canon law, of the teachings of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, of the encyclical Veritatis Splendor of Pope John Paul II, and of documents issued by Roman dicasteries. We are living in duplicitous times. 
The post-synodal exaltation of Maurice Laetitia is, to date, the greatest scandal of this pontificate, as it contains key passages that are in intentionally ambiguous, as proven by the multi multiple and contrasting interpretations and practical applications that they immediately received. For instance, a certain paragraph of chapter 8 gives the go-ahead for communion for the divorce and remarried. Although this is quite contrary to the Church's clear immemorial teaching and practice, it has already been illicitly done when Pope Francis as Archbishop of Buenos Aires, and even more troubling, is the discovery that key passages of Morris Laetitia were formulated some ten years ago by the then Professor of Theology, Victor Manuel Fernandez, in articles which gave a dissenting critique of Pope John Paul II's encyclical Veritatis Splendor. The upshot is that the two synods on the family would appear to be a fast de designed to produce predetermined results. According to the same Fernandez, who is now an archbishop, Pope Francis plans to make permanent changes in the church in ways that cannot be undone by future popes. He responded to a reporter's question, saying, The Pope goes slow because he wants to make sure that the changes have a deep impact. The slow pace is necessary to ensure the effectiveness of the changes. He knows there are those hoping that the next pope will turn everything back around. If you go slowly, it's more difficult to turn things back. You have to realize he's aiming at reform that is irreversible. For the informed Catholic, all these things are, of course, extremely disturbing. Yet, we must remember, we are not fighting flesh and blood. The current situation is desperate, but it also brings into focus the lament of Paul VI on the 29th of June, 1972. Celebrating the ninth anniversary of his pontificate in St. Peter's, Pope Paul reflected on the situation of the Church at that time, saying that he had a sense that from some fissure the smoke of Satan has entered the temple of God. There is doubt, incertitude, problematic disquiet, dissatisfaction, confrontation. There is no longer trust of the Church. They trust the first profane prophet who speaks in some journal or some social movement, and they run after him and ask him if he has the formula of true life. And we are not alert to the fact that we are already the owners and masters of the formula of true life. Doubt has entered our consciences, and it entered by the windows that should have been opened to the light. Science exists, gives us truth that do not separate from God but make us seek him all the more and celebrate him with greater intensity. Instead, science gives us criticism and doubt. Scientists are those who more thoughtfully and more painfully exert their minds, but they end up teaching us, I don't know, we don't know, we cannot know. The school becomes the gymnasium of confusion and sometimes of absurd contradictions. Progress is celebrated only so that it can be demolished with revolutions that are more radical and more strange, so as to negate everything that has been achieved, and to come away as primitives after having so exalted the advances of the modern world. This state of uncertainty even holds sway in the Church. There was the belief that after the Council there would be a day of sunshine for the history of the Church. Instead, 
It is the arrival of a day of clouds, of tempers, of darkness, of research, of uncertainty. We preach ecumenism, but we constantly separate ourselves from others. We seek to dig abysses instead of filling them in. How has this come about? Pope Paul entrusts one of his thoughts to those who were present, saying, There has been an intervention of an adverse power. Its name is the devil, this mysterious being that the letter of St. Paul also alludes to. So many times, furthermore, in the Gospel, on the lips of Christ himself, the mention of this enemy of men returns. The Holy Father observes, We believe in something that is preternatural, that has come into the world precisely to disturb, to suffocate the fruits of the ecumenical council, and to impede the Church from breaking into the hymn of joy at having renewed in fullness its awareness of itself. Precisely for this reason, we would wish to be able to exercise a function God assigned to Peter to strengthen the faith of his brothers. We should wish to communicate to you this charism of certitude that the Lord gives to him who represents him, though unworthily, on this earth. Faith gives us certitude, security, when it is based on the word of God accepted and consented to with our very own reason and with our very own human spirit. Whoever believes with simplicity, with humility, sense that he is on the good road, that he has an interior testament that strengthens him in the difficult conquests of the truth. But let us now add Fatima. But let us now add the Fatima revelations to this mix. It is well known that Our Lady appeared in Fatima, Portugal, to three children in 1917, and that certain secrets were entrusted to them. One of those secrets required the Pope, united with the bishops, to consecrate Russia to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. It has recently been made known by Cardinal Carlo Gafafra that Pope John Paul II asked him to begin a new pontifical institute for studies on marriage and the family. In 1980, he wrote to Sister Lucy, the last surviving visionary, simply requesting her prayers for this venture and surprised at receiving a very long letter with her signature. In it, we find written, The final battle between the Lord and the reign of Satan will be about marriage and the family. Do not be afraid because anyone who works for the sanctity of marriage and the family will always be contended and opposed in every way, for this is the decisive issue. And then she concluded, however, Our Lady has already crushed its head. This reassurance is encouraging, because 15 years after Sister Lucy wrote that letter, Cardinal Luigi Giappi, personal theological advisor to five popes, made a stunning disclosure about that part of the Fatima secret that the Vatican has never released. His Eminence, one of the few persons who has seen the complete secret, wrote in a 1995 letter to Professor Baumgartner of Salzburg, in the third secret it is predicted, among other things, that the great apostasy in the Church will begin at top. This apostasy seems to have been foreseen by Pope St. Pius X, who in 1910 wrote the French hierarchy in a letter entitled Our Apostolic Mandate. The great movement of apostasy being organized in every country for the establishment of a one world church which shall have neither dogmas nor hierarchy, neither discipline for the mind nor curb for the passions, and which, under the pretext of freedom, 
and human dignity would bring back to the world, if such a church could overcome, the reign of legalized cunning and force, and the oppression of the weak and of those who toil and suffer. Although our Lord promised that the gates of hell would not prevail against his church, and that he would assist her daily to the end of time, he made no promise, however, that she would not undergo crises, dissensions, betrayals, scandals, and apparent failures. On the contrary, our Lord's parables about the kingdom of God, which is his church, clearly affirm that the good and bad alike would exist in our bosom until the end of time. Only then will God send his angels to cleanse the earth of scandal. This earthly life is a period of trial. Thus, some will do evil and give scandal to others. It is impossible that scandals should not come, says our Lord, but woe to him through whom they come. St. Paul explains how these scandals help purify our faith. He says, For there must also be heresies, that they also who approve may be made manifest among you. In its exposition on the fifth commandment, the Catechism of the Catholic Church defines scandal as an attitude or behavior which leads another to do evil. The person who gives scandal becomes his neighbor's tempter. He damages virtue and integrity. He may even draw his brother into spiritual death. Scandal is a grave offense if by deed or admission another is deliberately led into a grave offense. This is from the Catechism, section 2284, 2284. So, scandal. Thus, scandal is essentially given a bad example by word or deed so that another person is tempted to imitate that bad example. The case of Peter's dissimulation at Antioch by not eating with Gentiles is an example of giving scandal. Conscious of Peter's position as the visible head of the church, will give his bad example and authoritative value, St. Paul publicly took him to task. The gravity of the scandal given by those in positions of authority is also noted by the Catechism, where it states in the following section, 2285, Scandal takes a particular gravity by reason of the authority of those who cause it, or the weakness of those who are scandalized. It prompted our Lord to utter this curse. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it will be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Scandal is grave when given by those who by nature or office are obliged to teach and educate others. Jesus reproaches the scribes and the Pharisees on this account. He likens them to wolves in sheep's clothing. It should also be noted that those who cause scandals that lead others to sin are guilty of the spiritual equivalent of murder, while those who take scandal, that is, who allow scandals to destroy their faith, are guilty of spiritual suicide. It is important to remember that the church is neither a church of saints nor a church of the predestined, but she holds within her bosom both the righteous and the sinner. In section 2286, the Catechism also notes that scandal can be provoked by laws and institutions, by fashion or opinion. Specifically, it continues, 
Therefore, they are guilty of scandal who establish laws or social structures leading to the decline of morals and the corruption of religious practice, or to social conditions that intentionally or not make Christian conduct and the obedience to the commandments difficult and practically impossible. This is also true of business leaders who make rules encouraging fraud, teachers who provoke their children to anger, or manipulators, ma manipulators of public opinion who turn it away from moral values. It seems to me that to encourage unrepentant sinners to access the sacraments would fall under the censure. It is difficult to see how the author of Amoris Laetitia can escape the following obloquy pronounced by the Catechism. Anyone who uses the power at his disposal in such a way that it leads others to do wrong becomes guilty of scandal and responsible for the evil that he has directly or indirectly encouraged. Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to him by who they come. That's from the Catechism 2287. God permits temptation, but he always provides sufficient grace to resist. St. Paul teaches, God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that which you are able, but will also make with temptation issue that you may be able to bear it. Expounding on the episode of our Lord asleep in the boat, St. John Chrysostom explains that the storm symbolizes the church's future trials, during which the faithful, the athletes of Christ, will be fortified. The church is the house of God, whose cornerstone is Christ. It is the holy city, the new Jerusalem brought down from heaven. However, God permits temptations even inside this sacred place, as our first parents were tested in the earthly paradise. In this way, our love is purged of all attachments to divine consolation and to human concerns. The Lord himself foretold scandals. St. Augustine explains that there will always be some bishops resembling the Good Shepherd and others representing the hireling. He wrote to Felicia Virgin who grieved over the scandals then plaguing the church. He said, I exhort you not to let yourself be too much troubled by scandals, which indeed were foretold precisely, so that when they happen we may remember they were foretold and not be disconcerted. For the Lord himself foretold them in the gospel, woe to the world because of scandals. For it must needs be that scandals come, but nevertheless woe to the man by whom the scandal cometh. Thus there are those who hold the office of shepherds, that they may watch over Christ's sheep, and that those who hold it for the sake of temporal honours and worldly advantages. These two kind of pastors, always dying and giving place to others, will be perpetuated in the bosom of the Catholic Church till the time ends and the Lord comes to judgment. So why are we going through this trial? It has been made clear that the Church's journey on the seas of history has not always been calm or tranquil. Just 50 years ago, the storms of Vatican II blew so violently that it seemed the Church would go under. After a brief lull, the winds have picked up again, and now it seems of an even greater fury. The Lord permits this time of trial that we might trust Him even more though the trial may also serve as a punishment for our infidelities, as was prophesied by the 15th century St. Nicholas of Flew. St. Nicholas 
wrote, the church will be punished because the majority of her members, high and low, will become so perverted. The church will sink deeper and deeper until she will at last seem to be extinguished and the succession of Peter and the other apostles to have expired. But after this, she will be victoriously exalted in the sight of all doubters. The reason for our current trial is relatively unimportant. What is important is that in these times, as the roaring squall tosses Peter's bark about and the Saviour sleeps, we should, with the apostles, cry, Lord, save us, for we perish. Awakening, Jesus will reassure us as he did them. Why are you fearful, O ye of little faith? He will stand up and in an imposing voice ordered the storm to cease and the sea to be quiet. Now, as in the past, the various squalls, storms and hurricanes seem to have one objective, that is to change the church, and the response has always been, hold on to that which has been received from the fathers, that is, tradition. This is certainly the advice of St. Paul in the following um, letters the apostle tells us i commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as i have delivered them to you first corinthians 11. so then brethren stand firm hold the traditions which you were taught by us either by word of mouth or by letter second thessalonians chapter 2 verse 15. i appeal to you brethren to take note of those who create dissensions and difficulties in opposition to the doctrine which you have been taught. Avoid them. Romans 16, 17. As I urge you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. That's First Timothy. The Catholic faith is always recognized by its adherence to what had once been delivered to it. St. Athanasius therefore could say, even if Catholics' faithful tradition are reduced to a handful, they are the ones who are the true Church of Jesus Christ. Likewise for St. Peter Canisius. Better that only a few Catholics should be left, staunch and sincere in their religion, than that they should, remaining many, desire, as it were, to be in collusion with the Church's enemies and in conformity with the open foes of our faith, which Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger once echoed, better a smaller but more faithful church. How can we survive and remain Catholic in these times? A great fault of Catholics is that we have a too exalted view of the papacy, a poor knowledge of history, and a deficient understanding of human nature. Consequently, not only do we find it hard to criticize our popes, but we border on papalatry, while veneration of the success of St. Peter is praiseworthy and even necessary, we must always remember that he is called, first and foremost, to be a protector of the faith, and any deviation from this rule should set off alarm bells. Papal infallibility. Papal infallibility is among the most misunderstood of Catholic doctrines. Correctly understood, the Pope is infallible, that is, preserved from teaching error when, and only when, certain specific conditions are met. These conditions are that the Pope must, one, intend to teach, two, he must intend to teach the whole church, three, he must intend to teach the whole church 
by virtue of his supreme authority. And fourthly, he must intend to teach the whole church by virtue of his supreme authority on matters of faith and, or morals. However, should one or more of these conditions be lacking, his teaching, even though worthy of respect on account of his office, would not be infallible. If all conditions are met, then his teaching act is called infallible and the teaching which he articulates is termed irreformable. St. Peter has had some 265 successors who can be classed as good, fair, bad, nefarious, or calamitous. Considering the spiritual nature of the papacy, it is important to remember that the quality of a pontificate is not judged solely on its historical, social, or political impact, but rather on whether or not, by word and deed, the Pope damages the faith of the Church, obscures aspects of the image of God, or fails to uphold the true human dignity which the Church has an obligation to defend, to transmit, and to deepen. A brief historical review would show that the See of Peter has been occupied by men whose reign, under the above criteria, can be described as calamitous. Examples of such popes would include Pope Liberius, who in the 4th century surrendered to strong Arian pressure. He accepted an ambiguous position regarding this heresy, which left St. Athanasius and other defenders of the Trinitarian dogma in the lurch. He is the first non-canonized pope. Pope Anastasius II in the 5th century flirted with the defenders of the Arcasian schism. Pope John XXII in the 14th century taught that the vision of God by the just does not occur before the last judgment. And this caused a lot of disturbance in the church, so much so that the universities had to intervene. The popes of the Great Western Schism in the 14th and 15th centuries excommunicated each other, and there were saints on both sides of, of um, the, the, the schism. Pope Leo X in the 16th century brought disrepute to the papacy, not only by his luxurious lifestyle, but also by his scandalous trafficking and indulgences. The acts and omissions of these popes resulted not only in the obscuring of part of the treasure of the faith for a period of time, but also in creating huge internal tensions within the Church. The current tension, confusion and division in the Church suggests that we are again living in calamitous times. History has shown that in similar circumstances, Catholics remained Catholics by imitating St. Paul, who fought the good fight, finished the race and kept the faith we must do likewise. So, in these calamitous times, we must keep calm and pray, we must study and be informed, we must share the faith, we must support fellow Catholics. To expand on each of these, we must first and foremost keep calm and pray. Our Lord is in the boat. Nothing is resolved by despondency, anger, or hysteria. The battle belongs to the Lord. The survival and stability of the Church does not depend on us, but rather on the one who established her for our salvation. In moments of distress, it is necessary to pray, pray, and pray. 
so the master will awaken calm the storm. It is necessary that we be truly convinced that the church is supported by a God who loves her and who will not allow her to be destroyed. Let us pray, therefore, for the reformation of our clergy and hierarchy, so that the present calamitous times <coughs> may be shortened and be followed by a pontificate of restoration and peace. Many dry branches will be lost during the current storm, but those remaining united to Christ will bloom again. Remember to pray the rosary, and remember the words of our Lord. But watch at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that will take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And again, watch and pray that you do not fall into temptation. We must study and we must be informed. We must, in short, know our faith. First, we must be familiar with the Scriptures, know the perennial teachings of the Church, and understand the principles of moral theology. Second, we must understand and correctly analyze the present situation. Read the authoritative histories of the Church and of the papacy. This knowledge will convince us of the unsinkability of Peter's bark. The Church suffers from the weaknesses of her members, but cannot sink because of them. She has been afflicted in the past, and we can expect afflictions to happen in the present as well as in the future. Third, we must read the lives of the saints and try to emulate them. As we read in the letter to the Hebrews, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. We must share the faith. Transmit the faith by teaching and sharing it within the family circle, by practicing it and by praying together as a family. Additionally, we must not give in to apocalyptic writings, we must not keep silent, and we should not deviate from anything that the Church authentically teaches. So, first, do not give in to apocalyptic warnings. History has recorded that in turbulent times, um, the, the men often regard these are signs of the end times. We should, however, live each day as our last day, so that we will be prepared for, the de for death. The end times will come at the appointed time, of which we know neither the day nor the hour. God will provide the necessary graces for that day. We should not keep silent nor look away. Evil prospers when the good do nothing. Therefore, it is important to speak up, to ask questions and to complain. If the captain of the ship is sick, drunk or mad, it is necessary to point this out so that the course of the ship can be corrected. St. Paul did exactly this in taking Peter to task. The Pope is not an autocrat, a tyrant or the leader of a sect, but a servant of the Gospel and of the Church. He is a free and human servant who, as such, can occasionally make bad decisions or adopt objectionable attitudes, which should be reprehended. Do not follow instructions that would rob us of the treasures of the Church. If a Pope should teach doctrines or should try to impose practices that do not correspond to the perennial teachings of the Church, as summarized in the Catechism, he should not be supported or obeyed in his intent. This means, for example, that priests and bishops are under the obligation to insist on the traditional doctrine and practice rooted in the deposit of the faith, 
even at the cost of exposing themselves to punishment. The lay faithful must likewise insist on being fed with traditional doctrine and practice, under no circumstances, not even out of blind obedience or fair reprisals, is it acceptable to contribute to the spreading of heterodoxy or heteropractice. We must support fellow Catholics. We must support each other and all true and authentic Catholic speakers and organizations. We must not support any schism. We must remember that we are Catholics, that we have a Pope who no earthly power can remove. Therefore, we must remain in the bark of Peter where Christ sleeps. Every Catholic has a duty to try to minimize from within the Church all the negative effects of a bad pontificate, but without breaking the Church or breaking with the Church. This means, for instance, if one's refusal to adopt some faulty teaching or practice will lead to punishment, he must not on that account initiate a new schism or support any of those already in place. It is necessary for him to keep on being a Catholic under any and all circumstances. We should also avoid generalizations. A bad pontificate will often result in the wrong men achieving positions of power and influence in the Church. It should be remembered there will also be good ones. Therefore, measure each cardinal, bishop and priest according to his fidelity to the faith. Objections should only be raised in regard to those who deviate from the immemorial doctrine of the Church or who adopt positions that may compromise the faith. This course of action was succinctly taught by St. Thomas Aquinas, who said, In accepting or rejecting opinions, a man must not be influenced by love or hatred of him who proffers the opinions, but only by the certainty of truth. The last and perhaps uh, uh, the most important thing that we can do is to prepare ourselves for martyrdom. A martyr is one who is a witness, and the most perfect form of witness, in fact, is to be ready to lay down our lives. And in this, the children of Fatima set us an uh, excellent example. They would rather die than betray the secret that had been entrusted to them. We also should be ready to die rather than betray the faith which has been given to us in baptism. And in the Mass, we, we actually pray for this. In the Nobis Quoque of the Roman Canon, we pray to us also your servants, who, though sinners, hope in your abundant mercies, graciously grant some share and fellowship of your holy apostles and martyrs, who John the Baptist, Stephen, Matthias, Barnabas, and all your saints. Admit us, we beseech you into their company, not weighing our merits, but granting us your pardon through Christ our Lord. Amen. This MP3 recording has been made available by Family Life International. Help us to make many more available in order to promote our Catholic faith. Go to www.familyandlife.org.uk and donate today. Thank mm-hmm. you.